Well, it's so good to see each one of you here this evening because we're going to start on a series that is going to have tremendous implication for every faithful Seventh-day Adventist. I hope we all recognize that uh, there is within the Word of God, much said about the persecution of God's people. And so I want to commence this evening with a text, and then we'll I'll talk a little before we actually get into the full message. But if you come over to Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, you remember that Part of the counsel that, God, that Jesus gave was counsel in relationship to persecution. Maybe we should commence at verse 9 and give the lead in because I believe that's important for us to follow that aspect. It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Why do I start there? Because even though we may be persecuted, even though our lives may be under siege, nevertheless, we are to recognize that we're to be peacemakers. Under no circumstances should that persecution come because we have behaved in a manner unlike Jesus very easy to think that we're standing firm for truth and righteousness. And we may be standing on a solid platform of truth, but we may not be very righteous. And the Lord, I believe, has called us to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I want to be a child of God. I believe we all do. But then in verse 10, it comes to this issue of persecution. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Again, you'll notice, it's only those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake that the Lord can bless. Many people may be persecuted. Some may be fearfully tortured. But it's because of evil things that they have done. But God's saints are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise of eternal life is assured of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11, Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. They're talking evil of you, but it's false. That's hard, isn't it? I wonder how many of us find it difficult when people speak evil of us and when especially false rumors are shed abroad. It's not easy. But we can rest assured that anything we've faced in the past is just 
mild compared with what's going to happen at the end of time. And therefore, as we prepare for the persecution that the Bible has made plain will inevitably come against God's saints, we've got to prepare a character. Or allow Jesus to prepare a character in us. Because without that character, we're still going to fail the Lord in that time. Verse 12, rejoice. How many of you want to rejoice when you're persecuted? And be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Well, Jesus could have readily said, although it hadn't happened at that point, so they're going to persecute me. If they would take and persecute and torture, remember much of what happened before the cross was torture. If they would do that to our Lord and Savior who had never sinned, what do you think they might do to us? Why should we expect a better fate than our Lord and Savior? But there is going to be certain characteristics that we will need as we face this situation. Certainly we'll need faith and trust in Jesus. And secondly, we'll need courage. Now I don't know about you, but I certainly don't naturally entertain courage. Every morning I pray the Lord to de develop my courage because I don't naturally have it. It's easy to talk about the wonderful martyrdom and faithfulness of men and women in the past, but to be it yourself is another matter. But I sense that these people had developed a faith and a courage that had come not from human resources, but from divine agencies. It has to be that way, brethren and sisters. We cannot lean upon the arm of flesh, not our own flesh or that of anyone else. It must come from the indwelling power of Jesus Christ. Now, I just looked over the set of topics that I assigned some time ago. But I want to cover much more than that this weekend. So I'm going to combine some of the material. I'm going to push it forward. Because so many things have happened in the last two or three months that I want to share some of that with you by Sunday morning. It's no use just talking about things that are even six or ten, twelve months old. We're going to do some of that. But we want to bring you up to date in what's happening in the religious liberty situation. And to do that, I'm going to have to push ahead. I hope you won't mind me doing a little pushing ahead. But it's only right, I believe, that we start a series like this on religious liberty that we come back here to Great Britain. 
I always start the series no matter where I am. In America, in Australia, I always start back here in the United Kingdom. I have to, because that is where the beginnings of religious liberty in this modern world or what developed into the so-called modern world began. I don't believe that the American freedoms could have pushed forward as far as they did without what had taken place in this nation here. And so that's where we're going to start. I want to go back to a very familiar part of British history. The year was 1214 and there was great unrest amongst the barons of England. Now, I don't have to go into as much detail here as I do in America, I hope. I presume the British have a fair grip on British history. The Americans do not on the whole. In fact, they're losing their grip on American history. Maybe the British are a British history. But we're going to cover quite a bit of historical data during this series. You can't talk about religious liberty without taking a trip through history. Looking at persecution, looking at the response, and looking at the way the development of freedom came. Now, when I'm talking about religious freedom, I'm not just talking about religious freedom for each of us individually. All of us want religious freedom, or civil freedom, or both, really. But let us be clear that what we also need is to understand that liberty involves the other person too. People that we deeply disagree with in their religious convictions but we still have to be agents of religious liberty. I take it upon myself frequently, not occasionally, but frequently, to write letters. I might mention a little of that later in this series, where I believe that religious freedom is being violated or has been violated. The whole purpose of religious and civil freedom is to provide for everyone who is a peaceable citizen of any nation the freedom to live a life according to the conscience and the convictions that they have. Twelve fourteen. it was the barons. It was a very opportune time. John had returned from defeat in France. So his stocks were a little lower than they'd been before he'd left. The great hope of victory had failed him. And you remember how the barons contrived to meet in Bury St. Edmunds in the great abbey in Bury St. Edmunds claiming they were going on a pilgrimage. But indeed, they were there to come together 
and plot strategy against the King of England. I suppose even today the name of King John rises in our, raises in our mind everything bad about a corrupt monarch. I would imagine that because of his reign, no other monarch has sought to take the name of John. It's a long time from the, uh, the 13th century down to the 20th century, and in that 700 years, no other monarch has accepted the name of King John. I sense it's because of the fact that John was such a detested king. It was a miracle that the success came. They were afraid, the barons, that the king might get word of what they were doing. And if that happened, they were in a rather difficult position. As you know, Bury St. Edmunds at that time was surrounded by marshes, not like you see today. And there was but one main road into that town. The escape route was not very feasible. Maybe swim through the march marshes. But apparently the king did not discover the plot. And there those barons determined that they were going to get some change in the autocracy of the monarchy. And they decided and they covenanted together that even if it meant their life, they were going to stand for what they had in mind. And of course, you know what happened. The next year in 1215, not at Bury St. Edmunds, but at Runnymede, the king actually came. And he was forced there to sign the Magna Carta or the Great Charter. Let's think about that. Didn't give a lot of freedom to the normal serfs and peasants of the day. But it was a beginning. It was a start. Dealing with civil liberty. We come down a little further to the 14th century and the peasants' revolt under what Tyler? An ill-conceived effort. You remember what Tyler was run through and killed himself and others lost their lives and nothing seemed to come much of it. And yet it was another step, this time not from the nobility of Great Britain, but from the common people. just to get a little freedom. A freedom that didn't impinge at that time on religious freedom, at least not obviously. But later we're going to see that the two go together, religious and civil freedom. You can't have one without the other. Don't try to have religious freedom if there's no civil freedom. It can't work that way. Perhaps we should quickly come down to the 17th century. 
The 17th century was a century of great change in Britain. You remember that in the very beginning of the century, Elizabeth I died. And without a close heir, James VI of Scotland came to take up the throne of Great Britain or of England and Scotland. I don't have to tell you that there was considerable tension during his reign until his death in 16. 25. He brought with him this concept of the divine right of kings, a concept that was alien to the thinking of many here in England. But he was able to at least see out his reign much more than his son was able to do. And after 24 years of reign, Charles I was beheaded. It came into open warfare and conflict. And Cromwell became the Lord Protector of this nation. But you know, the people after Cromwell's death were not happy with the fact that his son obviously not of the same caliber as the father and also somewhat of the king again in fact that became a cry almost sounded like Israel give us a king to reign over us and there was only one choice and that was Charles who became Charles II and in May of 1660 the monarchy was re-established and that began a pathway that led to the English Bill of Rights. A pathway that was going to take almost 30 years. And certainly that wasn't in the mind of the 30-year-old king. Charles... I, at least my evaluation of Charles II wasn't that he was the most moral or the most worthy king of this nation. He was what we would call today a playboy, dissolute in many ways. And under him, terrible persecution was re-established. Now, all through the history of the early part of the 17th century, the Baptists were in the foreground of trying to claim religious liberty. We find the same thing in America. The Baptists were the leaders in calling for religious liberty, for they had not that liberty. Even going back to the reign of James I, they had said petition after petition to the king. And sometimes they thought they were making progress with James I. But then the persecution would come back again. 
I've admired what those Baptists wrote. How many of you have read any of the petitions of the Baptists of the 17th century? They're all available to us still today. In the Hansford Knowles collection. I don't know whether they're all, but myriads. You know, I, I read one. And one of the, the, the men actually wrote 70 reasons why the king should provide freedom for his subjects. I don't know how you think about it. You think of 70 reasons why the king should provide freedom for his subjects? But I tell you, there's 70 excellent reasons. We may even look at one or two of them, or if we don't cover it here, you might want to read a few of them. That had a maximum sentence at the time of seven years in prison. That's a rather stiff penalty for preaching without permission from a human institution. But there was a second part of the Act, which later became known as the Conventicle Act. The second part of it was that no one could preach anything that was inconsistent with the teachings of the Anglican Church. That was even more serious. We're going to see how that came into the lives of so many people and affected them. You remember that John Bud Bunyan was standing there in trial and as more recently discovered, the judge was an extraordinarily compassionate judge. You don't think of 17th century judges as being compassionate. But in the archives in London where the transcript of the trial was discovered maybe 20 years ago, it was obvious that the judge did everything to free him of this offence, in inverted commas. Now keep in mind that John Bunyan had not hurt the person of any other individual. Keep in mind that John Bunyan hadn't stolen anything or taken or misappropriated any property that belonged to someone else. He was an upright man. He was an honest man. He was a sincere man. He was what anyone by any kind of evaluation was an upright citizen of Bedford and the regions where he was um, ministering. Now I want to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that point. It's one thing to have a person on trial for, for robbery or maybe for rape, or maybe for murder, or something that is against the social order, it's another thing for a man's conviction, and his right and his responsibility to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the issue that's going to come back to us. Indeed, we're getting so close to it today, and so many of us are not ready for it, or are not understanding how close it is that I believe that many of us will be caught without God and unprepared. It's made a big impact upon me and my desire to 
to be ready for Jesus when he comes. The transcript of the trial went something like this. Mr. Bunyan, is it true that you have a two-year-old blind daughter? Yes, Your Honor. Well, Mr. Bunyan, I don't want to send you to prison. So I've provided a statement here for you to sign that you will not preach again without the permission of the Anglican Church. That was very generous of the judge, wasn't it? Seven years minimum. Staring him in the face. Maybe you would have said, well, maybe, Lord, you're helping me. I'll try and do a little personal witness wherever I think there is an open. But, um, yes, I do have to care for my family. And the judge actually went on to the next case because that's in the transcript. But he hadn't finished his sentence. I mean, the sentence of starting with a new trial. When Mr. Bunyan said, I cannot sign this document because I do intend to preach again. That took courage. That seemed like a slap in the face to this Generous judge. But the judge tried again. Mr. Bunyan, I have friends in high office in the Church of England. Because it wasn't written in quite the English of today or said in the English of today. I will get you permission. to preach now that what would you do brethren and sisters now put yourself in Bunyan's situation my Lord has opened up the opportunity to me preach and I'm not going to be sent to jail the judge had done everything that he could possibly do almost beyond what the law would have allowed him to do and he started again on the next trial your Honor, I cannot allow you to provide such permission because that would give credence to the thought that the Anglican Church had the right to say who could and who could not preach. You see, John Bunyan understood religious liberty. He knew that there was only one that could give him that authority and that was not a human being on the face of this planet but only God himself could give that authority. My dear brethren and sisters, we preach, we teach, we witness, not on the authority of man. And when I see, even in God's remnant church, some pastors actually telling people that they cannot do witnessing unless they have his approval... I am staggered beyond all comprehension. Are we going back to the Middle Ages? Are we saying that the priests, if you like, of today or court pastors or whatever you want to say have the right to decide who and who could not spread the word of truth? Dear brethren and sisters, there is one that has given us a commission 
The real problem isn't today that so many are preaching without permission of the ecclesiastical authorities of the church. The real problem is so few are preaching when they have the freedom so to do. So few are sharing. So few are, are witnessing for their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One day, if you've got any thought of witnessing, you're going to be doing it in persecutive times, not in the freedom we have now. Now, you know that John Bunyan spent many years in jail, but were they lost years? Were they years where he had no witness? My, that man's witness comes down to us today, doesn't it? Would those books that he wrote have been written? We don't have a final answer for that, but there's a very good chance that he wouldn't have made the time to have written those books. And I want us to recognize that we cannot accept any human authority for witnessing for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Go ye into all the world. Who said those words? Were they only said for the apostles' sake? Of course not. They are words that have rung down through the centuries of Christian history for everyone who claims to be a servant of Jesus Christ and a follower of their Lord and Savior. Oh, dear brethren and sisters, we cannot allow man to intervene between us and God in our witness for him. Everyone is called. Each one who has been baptized is not only baptized into the life of Jesus Christ, they are baptized into the witness and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we can't avoid it if we're faithful to the calling that God has placed upon each one of us. And so, brethren and sisters, as we come through these histories and as we look at it, we've got to learn the lesson for us today. Because soon you're going to have to make a choice. At least I hope you're going to have to make a choice. If you're doing nothing now, maybe you won't have any choice to make. Now, I know there are people here that are witnessing wonderfully for the Lord. I'm not trying to preach to the already committed. But there may be some who are very lackadaisical may be indifferent they're not taking opportunities I look at myself so often I fail to try to initiate witness and it's so easy and if someone turns you aside the Lord still records your effort you've given him an opportunity or her an opportunity Coming over in the plane here, I was sitting next to a younger man and I engaged him in conversation. And I started with the usual way I start. Well, now, why are you coming over to England? Because I know he's going to ask me why I'm going. It's so easy. Well, he said he was an engineer, a transport engineer from Colorado, and uh, his company was on assignment in Portugal, 
and he was going over to help them with some of their new train systems and I don't know exactly what he was going to do but at least I got that from him. Well, of course, he soon asked me, well, what are you going to England for? He was only passing through. Well, I said, I'm a preacher. That sets the stage, doesn't it? Oh, he said, my father is a Methodist minister. All right. And he told me a little about his father, but I was waiting for him to ask what religion I was. And he did. Well, what church do you belong to? I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And I said, by the way, we've got strong Methodist roots. See, it was a good lead-in. And I explained how some of the early founders of the Seventh-day Adventist church had come out of the Methodist church. But I discovered this man had married a Catholic and neither he nor his wife attended church. He was a lovely fellow, very clearly a very decent kind of man, I'd say still in his 30s. Well, certainly he was not out of his 30s. And they had no children, but he said, you know, we're thinking about having a family. And I started thinking about going back to church. I need more spiritual... Well, what an opportunity. What a wonderful dialogue we had. And I was able to leave him with some literature. It would have been here for you folk, but I... You know, I felt that uh, the witness to him may be even more important than the witness here in Gaisley. I don't know whether I'll ever see him again. But there are opportunities we can't let... There's a world of nearly six billion people that need to know the message that you and I have been taught by the Lord and have been privileged to learn. What a message. Let's preach it. Let's teach it. Let's talk about it. Let's witness. Let's find people for that message. Well, I'm going to come to 1661, the second year of the reign of Charles II. And there in London and the outskirts of London, in a little hall, John James is preaching on a Sabbath afternoon. How many of you remember the story of John James? I tell you, it's very likely that you wouldn't be sitting here and I wouldn't be preaching here. Certainly, most Americans mightn't be Adventists today if it weren't for John James an Englishman. John James was preaching a Sabbath afternoon. You see, he was a Sabbatarian. Remember, this was an issue during the Reformation and small groups of Sabbath keepers arose as they read the Scriptures and saw for themselves that the holy day that God had designated for his people was the seventh day of the week. And John James was preaching to... I believe something like 15 people when the doors flung open at the back of the hall and the sheriff and his deputy were there and in their voice his strong voice he said in the name of the king cease your preaching 
Now remember, this is still the second year of the reign of Charles II. Remember, there were still many anti-monarchists. Therefore, there was a high tension about doing something that was opposed to what the king wanted. We know that Charles II's physician was a Sabbath keeper. We know that. But that didn't help in this case. Well, John James thought he had a higher authority than Charles II, and he continued to preach. But in no time, the sheriff and his deputy were up the front, had him handcuffed, and took him to jail. To the absolute consternation of the whole of that little congregation, they found the next morning he'd been charged with high treason. Because he refused to stop in the name of the king. There was only one penalty for high treason in England at that time. Do you remember what it was? Hanged, drawn and quartered. Every plea was made to save the life of John James, but nothing prevailed. His wife actually made a petition to the king. But John James was hanged, drawn and quartered. His head was placed in a post just opposite where he preached, and other parts of his body were displayed in other parts of London. Dreadful situation. But nothing happens without having a consequence that will be a benefit to the work of God. Let's keep that in mind. That poor man gave up, rendered up his life, a martyr. Because he believed in God's holy sacred day. And there may be folks sitting here today that may tragically end up as martyrs. But remember, God's going to use that for some other purpose. All things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even those that are martyred. Sixteen sixty four, three years later. Stephen Munford left England trying to seek religious liberty. He was a Sabbath keeper too. And the Sabbath keepers were not having a good experience here in Britain. So he sailed for the colonies in North America. I don't have to tell you which colony he went to, I hope. Which colony? To Rhode Island. The only colony that would offer freedom. You know, the British may not all realize just what a wonderful thing Roger Williams did. Some do, I know. But Roger Williams was responsible, I believe, for sowing a seed that developed in later generations. It certainly was not that the colonies were free of persecution. The Puritans had come over in 1620, but they became persecutors. They'd fled, they claimed for persecution, but they became persecutors in America. Massachusetts. The Anglicans that inhabited Virginia became terrible persecutors. Where 
we're right there. Heartland is right in the heart of the cradle of freedom in America, as we'll see a little later. Stephen Mumford did a wonderful thing. He started witnessing as soon as he got to Rhode Island and he was in a colony where it was allowed. And so he would bring little groups and teach them of the Sabbath. And he actually kept a diary and said uh, who the people were present and when one after another, of course not all of them, accepted the Sabbath. They were the first known Sabbath keepers in the United States of America, or what we now call the United States of America, in the colonies at that time. And many decades later, they eventually formed themselves into the um, Seventh-day Baptist denomination. Not during Mumford's lifetime. Now, I don't have to tell you the links between the Seventh-day Baptists and the Seventh-day Adventists. I don't think, or at least most of you. But in case you're a little, a little rusty on it, let's come down to the Advent movement. Now we're coming down into the 19th century. And you remember there in Washington, New Hampshire, in that little square boxy church, if any of you have been there, Frederick Wheeler, the pastor of that little congregation, was preaching that Sunday morning and he was preaching upon the commandments of God and how essential it was for everyone to keep all the commandments of God. But sitting in the congregation that day was Rachel Oaks Preston. Or Preston Oaks. Because her daughter was a member of that congregation. And she obviously could hardly sit on a seat when Frederick Wheeler was emphasizing keeping the commandments, but there they were, worshipping on the first rather than the seventh day of the week. She obviously was quite an activist kind of woman. And as soon as he'd finished, he went up, she went up to him and said something to the effect of, well, why don't you keep all the commandments? That would be a bit of a take back, wouldn't it, after preaching a sermon? on the commandments. Maybe he wondered what kind of accusations he was going to make against him. But of course she revealed to him that the commandment he wasn't keeping was the fourth commandment. Now many a man, a lesser man than Frederick Wheeler, would no doubt have said that this woman's off the wall or this woman's such a nasty or too confrontive or I don't like the way she approached me. We can do that. But this man was a godly man. And he spent the rest of the week, or the next week, looking at the whole process and studying earnestly. And by the time next weekend came around, he was a Sabbath keeper, but his congregation wasn't. And so he met the next Sunday morning, and what was it that he told them? He preached on the Sabbath and said, as of next week, we will be worshipping here every seventh day of the week. And so in that sense, he became the first Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I've seen the, the uh, grave of Frederick Wheeler. He lived to 99 years of age, so he had a long life. 
But you remember that uh, the Farmsworth family were in that congregation and they accepted the Sabbath message. And then you remember the journey that Joseph Bates made across from uh, Massachusetts to New Hampshire, arriving in the evening and he's, they stayed up all night. And the next morning, Joseph Bates was a seventh-day Adventist. And then the message spread to the Andrews and to the Whites and the Smiths and so on. And all of it, in one sense or another, can be traced back to the terrible slaughter of John James in 1661. That blood that was shed by that man was not in vain. In fact, I'm just looking for the, the time when I will have the privilege to meet him again or to meet him. I can't imagine he won't be in God's kingdom. He was used, even in martyrdom. And brethren and sisters, we can't see the end from the beginning, but we can see the hand of God through history. Some people say, well, I'm not interested in history. Well, when we see how it relates to God's word, I think it makes a difference. Russell and I have always loved history, and uh, some of you know we did a major in history at university. But that's not the history that we really remember much of. We were still, by the way, back in Australia where the main history was British and European. Uh, we did do, in our third year of studies, we did do a, um, a segment on Australian history along with Southeast Asian history, but the first two years were totally British and European history. don't think it's quite that emphasized today, but it's been a blessing to us because it helps us to understand the roots that have developed even within our own church history. I want to come now to 1670, tenth year, the reign of Charles II. A young man is standing in court also for breaking the conventicle act. But he was in worse shape than was John Bunyan because he not only had preached without permission of the Anglican Church, he was preaching doctrine that was directly opposed to the Anglican Church. He could have been sentenced to death, certainly to a very long term in prison. But something unusual happened. The jury went out to make what was a routine decision. After all, there wasn't a shadow of doubt. It was never contested that this man had broken the law, the Conventicle Act. He had preached without permission of the Church of England. He had preached a doctrine inconsistent with the Church of England. <coughs> 
And I can imagine the prosecutor and the judge were anxious to get this thing over with. But something happened in that jury room. Four of those jurors refused to find him guilty. Now, how could they possibly have done that? There wasn't any question on the evidence. It wasn't as if there was a, a reasonable doubt. But four men, led by one of the greatest acts of heroism, as you will see, for religious freedom here in Britain. Those four were led by a man named... Edward Bushell. Any of you heard of him? If you haven't heard of him, don't forget him. Another man to be admired and to be looked up to. He was a shipping magnate, so he wasn't a, a man with little means or little um, influence. But he led the four dissenters, and they couldn't. So the judge was so infuriated with this hung jury that he put the four in jail. That couldn't happen to you today if you came forward with a not guilty verdict. Any of you have been on a jury? I tell you, keep in mind, it's going to be less likely. I don't know whether you know what's happening to the jury trials here in Britain. I don't know whether it's been put through the newspapers here or not. And in other parts of Europe. And now the Americans are looking at what Britain is doing and what France is doing and what Germany is doing and what Japan is doing and other countries around the world. And they're starting to say, with these jury trials. Last year, only 5% of trials in Great Britain went to a jury. 5%. This is the land where trial by jury began. 5% of trials in Great Britain went to a jury last year. Don't you, if you think that's not significant... Later in this series, I'm going to tell you the significance of that, and you'll see it in the, the light. These men were so stubborn. They were thrown into prison, and they were tortured. Can you imagine torturing jurors because they refused to find a man guilty? They starved them for a while. They withdrew food from them. They manacled them to the wall and the poor men there they were smeared with feces and, and uh, urine and or, you, and here was a man of great note amongst them but he said that his concepts of liberty were not for sale and we better be like that too for nine weeks they tried to break those four men down to get a, a united jury result. And it never happened. And in the end, they had to dismiss it. And that changed the whole... If, if one event 
changed the face of freedom in this country, it was that trial. Because it was only going to be another 18, 19 years before the Bill of Rights would come in and that swept everything of this away. Out of that came habeas corpus. By the way, Bushel was the first person to be released under habeas corpus. You know what habeas corpus is? You're familiar with it, aren't you? No one can be held in jail without an accusation laid against him. You can't just be put there. You've got to have a specific allegation to be held in jail. It began the process that led to freedom of peaceable assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of religious uh, practice. Subsequently, it's traced to freedom of the press, just about every kind of freedom that we take for granted today but soon will be taken away from us can be traced to Edward Bushell and his three uh, co-jurors. The other eight just threw it into uh, what the judge wanted and what the prosecutor wanted. And I suppose they justified themselves by saying the evidence proved it. But they did something that had a profound effect upon America. America today would have been entirely different if it hadn't been for the stand taken by William uh, Edward Bushell and the other three jurors. Because the young man, by the way, any of you know who that young man was on trial? William Penn. Because he hot-footed it pretty quickly across to the colonies. You can understand why. We would not have Pennsylvania today. I mean, there might be something else there by a different name. We wouldn't have the city of Philadelphia, named for brotherly love. American history was, was forged. And this is what I t explained to American audiences. Listen, you can't understand your history of freedom if you don't understand what was happening in Britain. The two are indivisibly linked together. And by the way, you can't understand the American if you don't already understand the British side of this, this, this history situation. You know, this man made an impact because later when the American Bill of Rights, now remember the American Bill of Rights is 102 years after the British Bill of Rights. So it's quite a length of time in between them. They remembered what had happened to William Penn. They remembered William Bushell. Most Americans have never heard of, they've heard of Penn, but they haven't heard of Bushell. Penn would have unquestionably have spent most, if not all, of his life in jail, if not being put to death. And the history would have changed. And when they were setting up the judiciary of America, they remembered that situation and they provided in America for juries to not only judge the person on trial, but to judge the validity of the law. Now, 
Let me read to you a couple of statements on this so you'll know that I'm not just talking blindly on this. This is the statement of John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States of America. In 1789, he said, the jury has a right to judge both the law as well as the fact in controversy. The facts in controversy. Now, you imagine the jury was given the right to judge the, the law as well as to judge the um, facts in controversy. Samuel Chase, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, 1796. He was a signer of the Unanimous Declaration of Rights. Uh, sorry, unanimous declaration of independence. He said, the jury has the right to determine both the law and the facts. Oliver Wendell Holmes. Now, Oliver Wendell Holmes is considered one of the greatest jurists in the history of the United States around the turn of this century. And he said in 1902... The jury has the power to bring a verdict in the teeth of both law and fact. Harlem Stone, the 12th Chief Justice of the United States in 1942 wrote, 41 wrote, the law itself is on trial quite as much as the cause which is to be decided. That's become a controverted situation in the United States today because judges are trying to get away from that. And if we get away from trial by jury in the United States, it'll be useless. The American founders, you know, at first I thought some of them were almost crazy. But 24 years in the States and studying and getting to know what happened, I think I can understand their mind. There is one thing certain that the American founders were far more afraid of tyranny than they were of anarchy. They put things into the Bill of Rights that you'd think no sane person would put in there. The Second Amendment. Giving authority for every man to bear arms and to raise up a militia should dictatorship come. Now, how many governments would want to put such a power in the hands of the people? That's anarchy if ever you want it. But they were burdened to keep freedom in that nation. Of course, the Second Amendment is absolutely worthless today. I keep telling the, uh, the Americans, you keep worrying about it, but it's gone. No one, in the days when it was written, the common person could buy the same armaments that the government could buy, the same guns and ammunition and so on. Not today. I mean, with all these nuclear weapons and all the smart bombs and the helicopter gunships and these huge tanks and that. People can't buy those things like they could buy the guns 200 years ago. And so in reality, the events of technological development have priced it right out of the range of a militia being raised that could effectively overthrow the government of the United States of America. But that's what they allowed. Tomorrow morning at 9.30, I want to take up further what happened in America itself. Why is it that Virginia became the cradle 
of freedom, always where the worst persecution was, the greatest thrust for freedom came. And once again the Baptists were in the vanguard as they were here in America. In, in England, I'm sorry. Here in, in England. They were in the vanguard. We've got to pay a tribute to the Baptists. They suffered a lot. And I'm going to talk tomorrow morning about a martyr, a Baptist minister. He was martyred 12 miles from where Hartland is. It was a serious part of the... Because the Anglican mentality of England was taken straight to the colony, the Virginia colony. And they followed exactly the same practices in America as they practiced over here. Later in our series, we're going to look at a couple of other things. We're going to look at why evangelical Protestants are no safer than Roman Catholics in terms of persecution. It's their history. Their history is no different. And when I see evangelicals and Catholics together in America, I say, well, when it comes to persecution, they're sure going to be together. And by the way, we're going to look at some of the development of persecution, why it developed and the arguments in favour of persecution in the Christian church. But as we go through the series, I'm going to go much deeper into what is happening today. What is the result of the Supreme Court of the United States taking away the First Amendment and taking away the Fifth Amendment? No, they haven't withdrawn it from the Bill of Rights. But effectively, they have destroyed both. And I'm going to give you the result of that, not in saying what could happen, but what is happening in America since 1990 when the First Amendment was gutted and after 1991 when the, the Fifth Amendment was gutted. The First Amendment is, the, of course, a liberty amendment. It has the two clauses... It has the non-establishment clause. Congress will not establish a religion like the Anglican Church is established here or the Lutheran Church in some nations of, of Europe. And the free exercise clause that everyone has the right to free exercise of their religion. Two parts in the First Amendment. And the Fifth Amendment is an amendment on civil liberties. Now, go home tonight and contemplate that from the great controversy where Sister White is talking about those two horns of the second beast of Revelation 13. What did these two horns stand for? Well, there are a number of ways we, we state. We say Protestantism and Republicanism. Or we say religious liberty or and... Uh, civil liberties, or we say church and state, whichever way you want to, it all comes back to the same principles. It had to happen. We're going to look at why America was the most unlikely nation in the world to fulfill Revelation 13, 11 and onwards. We're going to um, 
also look at why uh, our founders could ever have come to the conclusion that that second beast was the United States because there was no possibility in the time of the middle of last century that the United States could have fulfilled that. But we live now down in the last part of the 20th century and it's obvious to us how the United States... And I'm not talking about the power of the United States. I'm talking about the policy of the United States and the mentality of the people of the United States. It could never have become the enforcer. But our pioneers and the, the prophetess, if you don't think Sister White was a prophetess, if you think great controversy wasn't uh, written by Sister White, I want to know who the prophet was that wrote it. If she didn't write it, some prophet had to write it. And we'll compare that as we go through our series here. We stand on a firm platform. And we're going to also look at how God's going to sustain us in the times ahead. Things that's happened in the last month have shown a further progress in religious oppression around this world. I've just written a letter to a prime minister and to the president of the United States, to the Secretary General of the United Nations, to the head the majority and minority leader of the Senate and the majority and minority leader of the House. That's how concerned I've become. That's just in the last couple of weeks. Well, let us kneel together in prayer and ask the Lord not just to give us these facts, but to help us to understand how to relate in this time of test and trial ahead. Our Father in heaven, as we kneel before thee, we know that thou art the one that has given to thy people freedom, that liberty is of Jesus, that the law of God is a law of liberty. But Satan has sought to enslave and coerce and compel men and women away from the beauty of the salvation that Jesus has offered to us. Oh Lord, we thank Thee for those that have stood in times past and we tread today in a pathway that has been forged with the blood of faithful men and women and with the courage of numerous others. Oh Lord, may we be so close to Jesus that we will stand though the heavens fall, that we will be true to principle as the needle is to the pole, that there will be no way that we can be bought or bribed or threatened or flattered away from loyalty to thee, that we will be as faithful to you as you are to us, we pray in the saving name of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.